All right, boys and girls, it is story time. I, as growing up as a young boy in the mid '80s, it was the era of the super gentrification of toys. There was the pink aisle, and there was the dark blue aisle, and never shall the two meet until 1985. And that is when She-Ra came to the toy store, and suddenly I was buying toys from the pink aisle. Gasp. Yes, fortunately, I don't think this got out, but people were already mocking me anyway for stuff like that, so what the hey. I, I, just, I just rolled with it. There are too many cartoons. But they'll watch them all. The Penny and James can sort of hopefully funny cartoon podcast. Hello, everyone. I'm James Irish. And I'm Pembroke W. Corgi. And welcome once again to the second episode. Why am I saying once again to the second episode? This is the first time they're hearing this one. Well, welcome <laughs> once again in general to the Pemmy and James kind of sort of hopefully funny cartoon podcast. Yo. And today it's the house that Lou Scheimer built. We, we've talked a, a good bit about him in our real Ghostbusters episode due to the many connections Filmation had to Ghostbusters. But today it's a series they themselves created it's She-Ra, Princess of Power. She-Ra, She-Ra. I am Adora, He-Man's twin sister and defender of the Crystal Castle. This is Spirit, my beloved steed. Fabulous secrets were revealed to me the day I held aloft my sword and said, For the honor of Grayskull! A few others share this secret. Among them are Light Hope, Madame Raz, and Cowl. Together, we and my friends of the Great Rebellion strive to free Etheria from the evil forces of Horda! I'll tell you what, if there's anything I'm going to say, I, I think she had the better theme song over He-Man. Because that freaking... That she theme freaking rocks. <laughs> so, the background behind this uh, this character is... Uh, well, at the time, the, the, uh, the, the Masters of the Universe toy line was making money hand over fist... Not just for Filmation, but for Mattel themselves. At one point, it was even out-earning the Barbie toy line itself. And let's be honest, Mattel was the dream house that Barbie built. That was a massive deal. So sensing an opportunity to make some money, the Mattel girls division decided that they want, wanted to create a spinoff. And so suddenly, our... Prince Adam has a twin sister he never heard of. Named Adora. 
oh yeah, yes. I've certainly heard worse names, and that, that that's, that's definitely a rhyming scheme there. And thank God they didn't name her Eve. Oof. Oof. <laughs> and much like He-Man, when, when Adora pulls up her sword and says, by the honor of Grayskull, she becomes She-Ra, Princess of Power. Our series was uh, created by Larry Dottilio and J. Michael Straczynski. We told you he'd keep popping up. It was executive produced by Lou Scheimer and directed by Gwen Wetzler. She-Ra ran for a solid 93 episodes for roughly two seasons of first-run syndication, effectively taking the place of He-Man himself in Filmation's production schedule. The show would also run on the USA Network for about a year in 1988, alongside another Filmation catalog title that had recently wrapped up, Fat Albert and the Cosby Kids. We're not doing an episode on that one. Hey, hey, hey. No, 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 I, I can't. I, I can't. I can't. The, the, the Cosby stuff is too fresh. Yeah, I know. I, I know. Thus, I'll just stick with hey, hey, hey. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, though his show ended production with the rise of his sister, Prince Adam and his cast would not actually vanish. He-Man would be a reoccurring guest star on the sister series, and characters from his toy line would show up too, most prominently in the robotic humanoid pachyderm what-the-heck-is-he snout spout. Uh, interesting note, though, about He-Man is, uh, believe it or not, originally Mattel didn't go to Filmation to make the show. They actually went to Hanna-Barbera, and Hanna-Barbera turned it down. Well, that... They they probably didn't even realize the type of market they were about to open up with that show. No, I, I'm sure it's probably something Hanna Barbera would have probably kicked themselves for when they saw what happened. But yeah. I also think we would have gotten a completely different show if Hanna Barbera was in charge of it. So, yeah, Skeletor would have probably been voiced by Frank Welker. That, as much as I love Hanna Barbera, '80s Hanna Barbera wasn't. The greatest of time for them. Not necessarily, no. Unless you were the Smurfs, and that was about it. Now, as but as a matter of fact, uh, the male characters of the villainous faction, the Horde, on this show, were not themselves part of the She-Ra toy line. They were sold as part of the, the Masters of the Universe group of characters, with its dark red and blue, meteors flying out background but there were still exceptions, notably Catra and Entrappa, who were sold on the pink toy aisle. Well, you you can tell I have a very low opinion of toy executives by the way I'm describing how they market these separate toy lines. There Eh. is nothing more sexist, i found, than a toy executive. (laughs) Just just take a look at uh, my nemesis, if if Lou Scheimer's the person you rage against, Pemmy, my rage for a long time was reserved for Ike Perlmutter. What a name. Yeah, the uh the, the head of Marvel under Disney, and the man who was convinced Black Panther and Captain Marvel would not make good movies because they wouldn't sell toys. Well, I <laughs> he got proven wrong. Yeah. It, so, so, so yeah, I, 
I've heard a lot of strange stories about Perlmutter, and we'll get into those more when we discuss the Marvel cartoons. I just wanted to bring him up because he's relevant to the discussion of toys and toy tie-ins and toy executives. Well, he obviously didn't hear about the My Little Pony boom in the 2000s. No, no. And that's also not the, fir- not the first time we're going to be mentioning My Little Pony either. Because this, because one of the episodes we're talking about is definitely, definitely reminiscent of a plotline we would see in the Friendship is Magic cartoon in its first season, no less. Yeah, which was the show that made me go to the Pink Isle. But anyways, that's beyond the point. <laughs> right. So, as as a matter of fact, as a franchise, Shira currently has just a little bit more visibility right now than the series it spun off from. And we owe this to Netflix, because in 2018, we got a full reboot of She-Ra, completely detached from the He-Man mythos, and it did well. Really well. It's really good, too. Yeah, I've been meaning to watch it for some time, and you know, my friend Mary Ellen, who I'm basically doing this episode as a dedication to her, my unrequited love... (laughs) You know, she swears by that show, and, and you know, she has fond memories of watching the original, too. But, See, yeah, it the, that show ran for roughly a little over two years, and it tied up all its storylines quite nicely. We're definitely going to do an episode on it at some point, as soon as we can figure out how best to address shows with more serialized plot lines rather than one-and-done self-contained stories. I, I will say that that show has the best version of Swift Wind ever. <laughs> oh, that, that actually doesn't surprise me, because Swift Wind is kind of a non-entity in the original cartoon. He's just someone for people to talk to. Yeah, and voiced by Lou Scheimer. <laughs> oh, yes, Lou. Lou, it, Lou Scheimer, in his cost-cutting craziness, he would voice... Seemingly half the characters in this show, in He-Man, and in a multitude of other cartoons that Filmation would produce. The ones I have listed down here are Mantena, Leech, Cowl, Grizzlor, the aforementioned Swiftwind, the rank-and-file Horde Troopers, and there's lots more. But if we spent time listing every character voice that were performed by the various people involved with this show, we'd be here all day. Though I do have to say, he's probably best known as the voice of Orko from He-Man. Oh, definitely. Definitely. And we actually get a little taste of of that Orko in in the first episode we'll be discussing. I also want to say I love his Swiftwind voice because it literally sounds like that horse has been smoking a ton of cigarettes. (laughs) (laughs) It's a a far cry from the next horse they'd create. But you can always tell when Shimer's voicing a character because he he rarely will use his actual voice. They always put some sort of uh, audio effect to it. Like it's either sped up or lowered or something. Right. Or or some filter. Now Now, heading up the voice cast is Melody Britt. She voices She-Ra and Adore herself, but her other credits include uh, Castispella, Catra, Octavia, and a character we'll be seeing later, Mermista. I just want to say that K- 
Cassispella is the dumbest name in this show. <laughs> oh, yes, and there are some humdingers of names in this show. I, I can get past every single other name, like Perfuma or what, or Catra or whatever other one they came, but every time I hear Cassispella, I just start laughing because it sounds so dumb. Oh, it, it's up there with He-Man's Fisto. Oh, 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 my my posterior hurts just hearing that name. Oh. Yeah, l- let's move on to some of the other voice performers. Uh, in- namely, George Desenzio, who does significant double duty in the majority of episodes as both Hordak and Bo. And you would also hear him as Seahawk, Tongue Lasher, and the aforementioned, what the heck is he, Snout Spout. He's kind of like the Alan Oppenheimer of this show, considering that Alan Oppenheimer on He-Man was both the voice of Skeletor and Man-at-Arms, as well as... we uh, will be hearing Oppenheimer's, uh, or Oppenheimer, whichever pronunciation is correct, I don't know. We will be hearing him today, for sure. Let's see. He's also Merman, but just throwing that out there. We also had Lou's daughter Erica contributing voices to the show, specifically including Frosta, Flutterina, Imp... Lukey, and one of our featured characters today, Perfuma. To her credit, she does pretty well. Um, oh, more yes. so than I... Oh, go ahead. I, I, I'm agreeing. So keep yeah. going. Uh, she does uh, pretty good, especially for someone who's not like, from my understanding, was uh, previously a voice actress. She actually does pretty good, which is more than I can say for Lou's son, who actually did also voice in at least one cartoon that I know of, and he was not good. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm making the sign of the cross that our audience can't see again because it's that Sport Billy thing. Yeah, he's the voice of Sport Billy, which mind blows me because I'm like, well, you have Frank Welker on that show. Why didn't you just have Frank voice Billy? But instead, they have his son, Lane Shimer, which is a letter off from Lame Shimer, um, mm-hmm. voicing Billy. And, uh, yeah, he can't act at all, and his voice doesn't work, because Billy looks like a kid that sounds like a 30-year-old, and he's always like, all of his voice acting is so bad and awkward, cause it's always like, don't, it's like, don't worry, we'll be there cheering for you. Cue John Lovett's clip, acting! Or uh, the one I like, which is uh, Patrick uh, Stewart just going, shaking his head, hmm. Acting. The final voice actress we want to note is Linda Gray, who performs, amongst many others, Glimmer, Shadow Weaver, Scorpia, Madame Raz, and Sweet Bee. I think Sweet Bee is one of the few female heroes whose name does not end in an A. Sweet Bee. <laughs> yes. uh, well, shall we dive in? Yes. Yes, let's start with the one you recommended to me first. Horde Prime takes a holiday. Because oh, I, what? I, I just, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I just thought about something else I'd like to say about this show that I just thought about. Sure. Um, all things considered, when you think about it, this show is actually, well, probably not intentionally, is actually kind of progressive for the time, despite the whole, like, gender separation of uh, toys. Because compared to a lot of other cartoons that would later be made based on toy uh, girl toys in the 80s, this one more or less just feels like He-Man 
with a girl character, so it's still very actiony in comparison to like some of the uh, the the Milo Pony TV series where it literally just felt like the character would solve the solution by whining or crying or guilt tripping someone rather than you know. Yeah, they definitely walked a very fine line, intentionally or not, between the action tropes that Masters of the Universe fans would have been familiar with from the various seasons of the He-Man cartoon and the elements that toy and TV executives would expect to appeal to, quote-unquote, appeal to girls. It's a very, very tricky balance, and it doesn't always work, but in these two episodes... I think they found it. I think so, too. All right. Sorry. Go ahead. (laughs) We are on Horde Prime Takes a Holiday, and wow, they're wasting no time delivering on the title premise because immediately we have Hordak talking to the disembodied voice and menacing giant robotic hand of Horde Prime. That, they must have spent a lot of money animating that hand because they use that same animation a lot. Oh, yes. And uh, and it makes me wonder why Horde Prime itself isn't seen more often because, A, you'd think they'd want to get their money's worth of those animations, and B, it's just a more threatening antagonist than Hordak often comes off as. Yeah. Hordak's... <sighs> Hordak's not bad, but... Um, no, it's not the worst I've ever seen. I, I'm not going to lie, though. I like Skeletor better. But I absolutely love this episode. This episode is great. But, you know, I, I think Hordak's design comes off better as a toy than than it in, in, than it did in cartoon form. His uh, transformation effects are good, though. Um, oh, we should probably mention who wrote this episode. Oh, yes, this was written by, yet again, here he is, J. Michael Straczynski. And the teleplay was done by Bob Forward. Bob is another very prolific writer in television animation. He got his start on He-Man, and he's been active in the industry up until 2018's Kulapari as a story editor. Yeah, he appeared in a lot of stuff ranging from the uh, Deke Legend of Zelda cartoon to uh, Beast Wars. Not to mention a lot of Marvel properties. He is very prolific. Yes. And when he's given the time and and the budget, he can actually be quite good, too. Yep. So, immediately, the premise is raising questions about what Horde Prime actually is. Is it a cyborg? Is it just using the robotic hand as an intimidation tactic? Or what? Because if it is a robot, it begs the question... Why does it need to go on a tropical vacation? Because everybody needs to go on a tropical vacation. (laughs) Maybe. Yeah. I know after all this quarantining, you and I could both stand one. I tried taking a vacation. That fell because I decided to take a vacation during the one time in like a hundred years that Texas decided to get a complete snowstorm and freeze. (laughs) Yeah, didn't yesterday you said... wasn't, weren't you dealing with hail yesterday, too? Yep. Oh, God's I just think they were almost ping pong ball size. Yep. God's just trying to take out Texas, you know, but we, we, it, it happens. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Elsa, knock it off, will ya? 
Oh, oh, wait, I'm sorry. I should be asking Frosta to knock it off, considering our topic today. There we go. So, Horde Prime leaves Hordak and Mantena in charge of his flagship, the Velvet Glove, and I have to pause to talk about Mantena. He is the literal definition of butt monkey. <laughs> well, maybe more figurative, because he's not actually a monkey. He's more of a, of a four-legged uh, thing. But he's definitely, you know, the, the the original toy from Antenna actually looks intimidating because he's got that standard size and proportions of a typical He-Man's Universe toy. And his mouth is, is this circular thing filled with these spike-like teeth. His eyes are all bloodshot and veiny. And, you know, he's just built actually kind of creepy-like. In the cartoon... He's the comic relief villain. Yeah, everything happens to poor Mantena. <laughs> yeah, in fact, we will get into the reoccurring gag of Mantena being take being dropped down a conveniently positioned uh, shaft to the uh, fright zone moat. We'll definitely be seeing that in the next episode. But you know, here it actually doesn't happen. And he totally doesn't sound like Orko. <laughs> it's more of a nasally Orko. He sounds like Orko if he has had way too much coffee. <laughs> or had a bad sinus infection. Uh, so, not, not half a minute after Horde Prime shuffles off to Space Hawaii... Hordak is defying his orders. Uh, yeah, we should mention that because uh, the thing is, Velvet uh, Horde Prime mentions that he had used to have two flagships, but seemingly Hordak was responsible for destroying one of them. However, the Velvet Glove is his best flagship, and he mentioned that despite the fact that it's in care of Hordak, Hordak is not allowed to use it. He's barely even allowed to look at it. Which which begs our second question. Why is Horde Prime leaving Hordak in charge of it? I mean, maybe, maybe like, side contract Grizzlor or Leech, perhaps? Somebody with a little less ambition? Maybe, sadly, he is the most trustworthy person he has. I would think, well... Or maybe he's just the highest ranking person he has. Probably. I would think Shadow Weaver would do a decent job. Or, you know what, even Mantena. Mantena would be too terrified to, to try and break anything. I, I think he also knows the fact, basic factor that if he puts it in the hands of any of uh, the flunkies under uh, Hordak, Hordak will find out and thus still probably do the same thing. Oh, true. Cut out the middleman. So... Hordak intends to conquer not just Etheria, but Eternia as well, the sister planet and home of our perpetual guest star, Prince Adam, a.k.a. He-Man, but don't tell us, but don't tell anyone we told you that, and the Sorceress <laughs> of Grayskull. Fortunately, the Sorceress can see all, so they know that. Yeah. And At first thus... I thought she was spying directly on him, but it turns out it's just an, an intercepted uh, communication, because she turns it off like as if it were just a VCR recording. 
see. Though it is also that just cartoon whatever character has so much power they can just see whatever the heck they want for plot convenience. Hmm, true. Um, but regardless, she's knowing that he has ambitions not just to take over Etheria, but also Eternia. Wow, even the planets sound similar. Um, the sorceress sends He-Man to go take uh, to go help She-Ra in order to take out the Velvet Glove and stop Hordak's plan. Take out the Velvet Glove. That sounds so different outside of context. <laughs> what a weird name for a flagship. Yeah. And oh, guess what? The communi- that communication wasn't just intercepted by the sorceress, but also by my idol, Skeletor. Blasted <laughs> <laughs> hard, bully boy, conniving, cloying jumper. Yes, actual uh, dialogue in the episode. Celebrity voices are impersonated. <laughs> oh, the, the gem! I I love Oppenheimer as Skeletor. He he he's so good. I remember in an interview he actually mentioned that when they first got this, he actually takes partial credit for how Skeletor is portrayed in the show because he said when they first got the scripts for the first few episodes, uh, he was Skeletor is written really seriously. And he just kept hamming it up more and more, and then the writers just kind of kept going with it. Hmm. Which is how we wound up with you, royal boob! <laughs> oh, gosh. Skeletor is so great. I and am not nice! <laughs> and it's good that Oppenheimer is still getting work because he will be voicing Merman in the Kevin Smith follow-up to the Filmation Masters of the Universe. That's awesome. No, not uh, Merman, Lost Man. That's still awesome. Unfortunately, oh, yes, he's yes. not voicing Skeletor. Yeah, but Mark Hamill is. I think we can let that slide. So Skeletor decides to shuffle off all the way to Etheria so that he can take the Velvet Glove. And again, that just sounds weird. <laughs> See, because Skeletor's like, he can't take it if I take it first! <laughs> so... With our players in place, we cut over to the invasion of Etheria from the Velvet Glove, and Bo is Captain Obvious in this episode. <laughs> that thing's huge. Twitch is yeah. it's big, all right. <laughs> yeah, that that's like saying water is wet. Those are also just great out of context lines. Hearing Bo go, it's big and. Uh, Dora is like it's or, or no hearing uh hearing Bo say it's huge and like Adora going it's big all right. <laughs> With this obvious threat in sight, Adora races off to find Shira. Yes, no one real no one notices that Adora mysteriously disappears when Shira appears. Hmm, and it, they don't even have she doesn't even have the same excuse as. Prince Adam changing skin tone. <laughs> I mean, at least there was that in favor of the He-Man cartoon. The, that visual distinguishing factor between the two. Though in defense, She-Ra does put more clothes on, which I can't say for Prince Adam. Yeah, and we'll actually be getting into that wardrobe mess a little later on. <laughs> But aboard the Velvet Glove, 
we see that uh, Hordak and Mantena have been joined by a little scene horde baddie, Multibot, who is just there to pull levers. Pretty much. That really makes me want to buy his toy. Not. <laughs> so, so the so the so Hordak decides that the best way to uh, disrupt the magic of the Whispering Woods is a big old frost ray, and so with the assistance of Multibot, the frost ray is launched, and Shira comes in one quick sword to shield, and she intercepts the, this orbital bombardment single shieldedly. It is worth mentioning that is one of the differences between Shira and He-Man. He-Man just pretty much uses his sword to, like, well, as a sword. Shira has the ability to transfer it into various different objects. In this case, a shield. And we will definitely see that come to a lot of interesting use in this episode. But uh, apparently, this ice beam needs to touch the ground to work. Now, we mentioned Futurama in the last episode, and specifically uh, Maurice LaMarche's newscaster character. I have to evoke that spirit when I say, Physics do not work that way! <laughs> That's well, rough on my, on my throat. Well, talking about physics in a filmation product is... Yeah, it's, it's a lost cause. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and... To which uh, Hordak keeps powering the... Uh, Hordak, noticing that Shiva is blocking the beam, keeps asking... Uh, shoot, I forgot what his name is. because Multibot. Yeah, Multibot to keep upping the power on it, to which it keeps pushing Shira further and further down, and at one point knocks out Swiftwind, who she was riding, <laughs> who gives off a really generic like horse sound when that happened. All right. And soon it's to the point where Adora is literally struggling and fragments of the beam's energy are splitting, are bouncing off the shield and freezing whatever they hit. Again, physics don't quite work that way. And then along comes He-Man, just in time. I, I love that delivery before He-Man appears. She's like, can't hold much longer. I need a hand. It's like, who would say that? <laughs> but... Fortunately, a hand does appear, and that's He-Man. He-Hand? Yeah. Which he's like, now, what are you doing here? And he's like, no time to explain. Now, for normally, when, when, a, when a sudden heroic reinforcement shows up in an 80s action cartoon, I'm like, how in the world would they have known where exactly where to go? But at least this time, there's a massive orbital bombardment to lead He-Man right to the location. So, I, I, I'll give Filmation a point in this instance. <laughs> I, I just like that He-Man, like, uh, exacts the super chicken claws of whenever someone asks the question. It's like, no time to explain! Naturally. So, and just as Multibot is about to hit full power to counteract the combined strength of He-Man and She-Ra... Skeletor yeets Mantena off screen and zaps Multibot. Yeah, at least Multibot got shot. Like, Mantena yeah. literally just got pulled off screen. Right. Now, we should mention that Hordak was Skeletor's mentor at, in, way back when. And 
Eventually, Skeletor just decided, heck with this, I'm starting my own evil organization with Blackjack and Hookers. Speaking of Futurama <laughs> references. Uh, if you didn't make that reference, I totally would have, so. Right. It had to be one of us. And soon, Mentor and Turncoat Student are having a magic laser duel, trashing the Velvet Glove in the process. And Mantena reveals himself to be the smartest person on the show by saying, essentially, screw this, I'm out of here, taking Multibot with him. I, I want to point out the awesome moment with Skeletor in this episode where, like, uh, Hordak shoots his ray at Skeletor, and Skeletor just blocks it with his hand like it's nothing. Like, it's literally that kind of, like, bitch-please kind of pose. Just... Oh, yes. <laughs> yes. They really do right by Skeletor on the on this particular episode. He's definitely a threat for a change. Oh. <laughs> but it helps that he's going to being a threat against another villain, so I guess he can actually cut loose a little more. Yep. Let's see. Anyways, he and she find out that both Skeletor and Hordak are fighting for the ship now, and either of them getting in the ship is bad trouble for them. He-Man pulls out, of all things, a grappling hook with endless rope out of his loincloth. Yeah. <laughs> and all and suddenly I throw my hands up in defeat. Where was he keeping that? It, within the loincloth, I mean. I don't know if I want to know. I, for God's sakes, there's enough rope in that to reach out beyond... to reach outside the atmosphere of Etheria. If, if there's that much rope rummaging around, his family jewels must have been chafing. <laughs> well, he did say it had endless rope, but I don't know... If I want a further explanation of how endless rope works from out from your pants, but right. oh, oh, and all, and we were having a hard enough time with all the holes in the pre <laughs> in our previous episode. Oh, the dirty minds of forty-year-old geeks, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> I, I I love the scene though because he's like, she's like, "Can you throw it that far?" He's like, "There's only one way to find out. Try." <laughs> And, and throws the grappling hook clear into space. Yeah. Cue Tim Curry. Space! <laughs> Thank you. So the sound of the hook connecting with the ship is enough distraction on Hordak for Skeletor to take advantage. I want to know how Hordak heard that from inside there, to be honest. It could have yeah, been that, that loud. Yeah, that's true. I mean, in space, no one can hear you scream. Or hear your grappling hook latch. Right. But it's... what. It, however it happened, it was enough for Skeletor to subdue Hordak and take control of the Velvet Glove. So He-Man starts holding the rope for She-Ra, and she just gym classes her way up, hoping she can make it in time. At this point, I realized I was a dumb kid for taking this show so seriously. <laughs> oh, see, that's the thing with these shows. When I was a kid, I thought He-Man and She-Ra was awesome, and that was why I liked them. As an adult, I liked these shows for a completely different reason. I love these shows because, God, are they campy. No kidding. 
it's just hilarious how you just like, all right. It, actually, it's even more hilarious because, you know, she was climbing this rope into space and at one point it's just like sword to helmet and puts on a helmet and she's like, whew, I couldn't breathe out there. And I'm like, yes, that's the only problem you have when you're in outer space. Yeah, never mind the cold. It's like, ha, ah, from the guy who created Babylon 5. <laughs> And all I can think of is uh, Iron Man flying by and going, Hey, Shira, how did you solve the frost problem? Frost problem? <laughs> so, so uh, Skeletor finally repairs the, sh the ship's controls. And Which he turns I out point oh, sorry. I just want to point out that it's awesome that he repairs the controls by shooting a laser at it from his finger at the controls. So he's got some sort of like like, electronics fixing ray coming out of his hand. That is, that is glorious, yes. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, he gets it fixed and starts to ride the velvet glove. God, that does sound awkward. <laughs> to Eternia. And this causes enough, enough force that, that He-Man, while hanging on to the endless rope, which, by the way, we should also mention is unbreakable. He starts getting dragged on the ground by the ship. Eventually, he needs to brace himself against a mountain. Which, also, I, I want to recommend trying to pause the scene right before he... Because before he, like, he, uh, he hits the, uh, the mountain that he uses to try to restrain the ship... Uh, there's this close-up they do of him swinging from the background to the foreground, and his face, if you pause it just right, is hysterical looking. Okay, nice. Um, but yes, He-Man is so powerful that he is able to restrain this giant flagship with a rope, supposedly unbreakable rope, and a mountain. Now Skeletor applies more power... Enough that the mountain begins to split, and so does my headache. <laughs> However, She-Ra notices that there is a meteorite, rather big meteorite. Bum, 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 bum. No, meteorite, not asteroid. <laughs> <laughs> you knew I had to do that one. Yes. But a meteorite coming right in front of the Velvet Glove, to which she waits and then uses, goes from helmet to sword to cut the line just in time that it would thrust the Velvet Glove right into the asteroid. Or meteorite. Now hold on meteorite. just a minute here. First of all, her lack of oxygen should have almost... Her exposure to this to space should have popped her head like a zit. Second of all, I thought that rope was unbreakable. I guess it's only breakable from magical objects? Possibly. Still, later on, He-Man even calls it out that the rope didn't break. She must have cut it. And and he's like, like, well, he, he's looking at, at the end of it. It's like, Shira must have cut it. I hope she knows what she's doing. And Switzerland's like, Shira always knows what she's doing. 
Where's my pack of Marlboros? <laughs> they should have smash cut to. I wish I knew what I was doing. <laughs> but the the show isn't quite that degree of clever. <laughs> it's 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 cleverness is saved for alliteration. <laughs> there you go. But fortunately, Shira did know what she was doing, and she completely wrecked the ship, which gets a great light out of Skeletor. He's like, oh, no, my freshly stolen ship ruined! (laughs) And noticing that the ship is about to explode, he's just like, see ya, and teleports out, leaving Hordak on the ship. And then Shira escapes with Hordak, finding a very convenient uh, space helmet for our, uh, our, um, I don't know how to describe Hordak's skull, but it's vaguely pig-like, but not quite. It's pig-like enough that they make him snort a lot. True. But it just happens to be convenient there, and even more conveniently goes through the, uh, the the, the gaping hole in the velvet glove, Again, this just sounds so weird. I also want to point out that before uh, Shira changed her sword back to a helmet again, uh, after cutting the line, she's like, she's. They made a point to have her go. Whew, I didn't know if I could hold my breath much longer. And it's like, again, that's not the only problem you have to worry right now. Yeah, but that gets even crazier in a moment yes. because seemingly putting that helmet onto Hordak is just enough for him to survive in outer space also as they jump off the ship and back into Etheria's, like, atmosphere and gravity. Which begs the question, how did they propel themselves to get into that atmosphere and gravity in the first place? She just kicked off the ship that hard. I I guess so. She's hitting the thigh master. <laughs> and on the way down, the atmosphere starts to, starts to, uh, oh, uh, what? It, it starts to ignite them. And in the immortal words of Yosemite Sam, ah, my biscuits are burning. Great horny toes. That's smart. I, I was just going to say that since he decided to do a close up, uh, I can't argue that Shira's got a hot ass. <laughs> oh dear I mean they literally showed it her butt was what was turning on fire to which she's like ooh those clouds cooled us off for a second I was like what oh and so they land well first I, I, we gotta mention that first she turns shield to uh, sword to shield again and puts that under her bottom and seemingly that protects her <laughs> Uh, you would think that would turn the shield into a frying pan. Well, maybe it's a different kind of metal. Eh. We're, we're thinking too hard about this show. It's kind of hilarious when you overthink this stuff, though. Yeah. I still like that they also felt the need to have her mention, ooh, those clouds cooled us off a bit. I'm just like, what? <laughs> Excuse me? Oh, but uh, they get back into Etheria's atmosphere, and then... She transfers from shield to parachute. Yes. Which that doesn't look like a very good parachute, since it literally looks like her shield on, like, some strings. 
naturally. Uh, and so they land. Hordak conveniently turns himself into a rocket and escapes. A very... Yes, a rocket. I'm just going to leave it at that. Yeah, it, it's... We, we've had enough, like, adult references. I don't need to talk about that rocket. Right. <laughs> and and so He-Man, She-Ra, and the gang are, are assembled. Uh, our heroes having transformed into their royalty alter egos and are discussing how Hordak is going to explain this to Horde Prime. <laughs> to which all we saw, all we see is him saying, well, you hear? And then seeing Hordak flung, yeeted out of a freaking castle. Yes. And that brings us to our lesson for the day. You see, this was made <laughs> at the tail end of the era where so many cartoons for kids had to include these... Uh, educational matters but why just this to get, one? just to get past the censors and the moral guardians and this lesson was about the bad touch which is weird because that has nothing to do with the episode at all usually these morals have something to do with at least the episode but unless i can Lately missed something. I don't think the bad touch was even involved in this episode. You didn't. You missed nothing. Unless, but, uh, unless Skeletor gave Hordak the bad touch. Oh, no, wait. Hort ha Skeletor gave Mantana the bad touch. That's when he yeeted him off. Mm. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Oof. And so that... That concludes Horde Prime Takes a Holiday, and when we return from this break, we will look at our second episode. Well, and can I at least I... say one thing about that? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I... <laughs> He-Man's like, if someone's giving you the bad touch, don't be ashamed. I'm like, no, be ashamed! <laughs> <It's> like, what? <laughs> it's like, don't be ashamed. Tell your parents, a police officer, your rabbi, or minister. <laughs> it's like, it's like, yes, tell them, but I mean, you still should be ashamed. That's eek. <laughs> if, if any, I think what they're more trying to say is don't let the shame of it become it so much that you don't, that it prevents you from stopping it. Yeah. But it's uh, just it's clumsily just done. Very clumsily done. <laughs> Complete with Orko going, if anyone tries to touch me, I'll. <laughs> I'm just like, oh. Orko, please, no one wants to touch you. Don't worry about it. <laughs> okay, I think our sponsors have held off their tempers long enough. We do have to take our commercial break. All right. Ooh, don't go away. We'll be back right after these messages. On the next Pemmy and James show, before He-Man and She-Ra had the power, Ruby Spears gave Saturday mornings a somewhat more grounded take on the Fantasy Kitchen Sink approach. 1980s Thundar the Barbarian mixed swords, sorcery, and science with some of the most stunning painted backgrounds seen to that point in kids' television. How do the adventures of Thundar, Ariel, and Upkulamak hold up today? Join us as we embark on that adventure in two weeks. Oh, and now back to She-Ra! <laughs> Alright, we are back and it is time for Episode 2 Flowers for Algernon. I, I mean, flowers for Hordak. Oh, this episode is great. 
Oh my god. This episode, more than any other episode of She-Ra, Princess of Power, seared itself onto my brain for just how bat guano crazy it is. I think Perfuma might be my new favorite character because of this episode. <laughs> oh yes, yes. I, I, watching this this morning renewed. Uh, I'll we'll get to it in a second because we start once again in the fright zone where one of the more regularly reoccurring hench folk of the horde, Shadow Weaver, has our MacGuffin of the day, the Black Ruby. Also, I always thought it was weird that Shadow Weaver's outfit is so form-fitting. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's both a surprise and not a surprise, especially considering what I've heard about uh, the animation of the She-Ra transformation sequence. If you thought we were holding back dirty jokes when we were talking the previous episode, folks, you ain't heard nothing yet based on what I've heard about this. Oof. Do I dare? I dare. I dare you. (laughs) Apparently, the animators decided to pattern the energy effects after sperm. I can see that now. And now you can't unsee it. Oh. I'm going to be thinking about that every time. I I do know that when I rewatched this show for the first time in like, I think my early 20s, uh, and I saw Shadow Weaver, I was like, why is that witch so fucking hot? It's just like, thought it was really weird. So, our inexplicably hot ancient crone (laughs) that the Black Ruby can increase her shadow powers. But Hordak has her hold that thought because he needs to harass poor Mantena. It's like completely out of nowhere, too. Yes. Mantena is summoned from his shower to explain the pretty gold statue he stole that Hordak very quickly destroys with his arm cannon. Also, I just want to say that Tal does not cover... As I wish that towel covered more of Mantena because that was more of Mantena than I ever wanted to see. Admittedly, I was I was looking more at the shower cap. Mantena doesn't even have hair. <laughs> Maybe his scalp is sensitive. Uh, perhaps. But the point is, Hordak hates pretty things. He makes a very distinct point of it. Once again, very little time is being wasted on setup for what's going to be happening in this episode. Their filmation is even efficient with their plotting. Though they're not good at subtlety. <laughs> no, no. So we get the aforementioned reoccurring gag of Mantena taking the nesty plunge into the Fright Zone moat prefaced by Hordak saying that Mantena doesn't need a shower, he needs a bath. Uh, I think I got it right this time. Yes, you did. See, yeah, and it really comes out of nowhere, though, because when he first pulled Mantena in, I was like, oh, is he going to have her use the ruby on him or something? But no, he just just drops him in the boat for no reason. It's not even valid for anything that was going on there other than he just felt like doing it randomly. 
Yeah, I guess they decided they needed the sh- the shower part to set up the bath gag. <laughs> uh, they they could have done it a little more elegantly by having Mantena compare the ruby to the statue he stole, and then Hordak blasting it, and then Mantena's like, I'm gonna hit the showers. And then Hordak makes the bath joke. Yeah, or they could have just done it before Shadow Weaver even brought up her thing, just like the start the episode with that gag. True. It, It just feels really weird that it's like Shadow Weaver's telling him this whole plan, and he just cuts... Stops it just so we can do this out of nowhere. No Hordak's got some serious ADD issues. Well, so Santa Weaver's eventual goal is to darken the air around the Whispering Woods. Hordak does, isn't very impressed until she tells him that this darkness would wither, would wither the trees and remove the magical protection the rebels rely on. Because it'll oh. block the sun. Oh, yes, yes. To which Hordak thinks... What a great idea! I'm glad I thought of it! And Shadow Weaver is such a clever hench person, she just does not protest whatsoever. In fact, she not only lets Hordak have this self-serving eagle boost, she even says that he spotted the potential flaw. The plant-growing perfuma. Of course! <laughs> now that is some really effective toadying there! She knows, it's called She Knows Her Role, and she does it well. She knows how to get what she wants. Do you think they were intentionally doing that to differentiate her from the ambitious evil Lynn over on Snake Mountain, or was it just a coincidence? I I think it's probably the just differentiate her from not just evil Lynn, but just, or evil Lynn, but uh, just kind of like Skeletor and his baddies. In general, because Skeletor is always kind of bullying his baddies rather than having them like, I don't know, rather than them like ever trying to feed his ego or anything. It also kind of helps that on Etheria, the Horde is basically on the verge of winning, while uh, Skeletor and the Snake Mountain crew are basically on a 50-50 split in the terms of uh, the power balance on Eternia. Thanks a lot, Zodak. <laughs> Yeah. So, sh- shall we move on to our next scene? Yes. Adora and Bo are found relaxing at Mermista's home, the Crystal Falls. Mermista, the questionably French mermaid? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Mermista has a very Pepe Le Pew thing going on with her voice. Yeah. I have friends who are French. I wonder what they'd think about that. <laughs> but pertinent to our storyline as a whole, Adora feels guilty for wanting to relax, and Bo tells her she should really take the time to to relax. She can't be working all the time. Not that Adora does any of the work. It's always She-Ra. Oof, wait. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Remista also informs him that that the reason the Crystal Falls has been looking so beautiful is because Perfuma has been around decorating. We see Perfuma using her magic to grow flowers and a lily pad bridge, and then we hear Perfuma's southern accent, and I fall in love. (laughs) I do want to say that that the effect of her making the uh, lily pad so that she can cross the water to talk to uh, Adora and Bo was actually a really neat idea. That was really clever. Pemi, I know you're an Applejack guy. (laughs) I, too, am an Applejack guy. 
And, and you probably could have guessed that because of my fondness for Rogue from the X-Men. And now Perfuma is slotting right into that. I don't. I. I don't think she's. I. I, I like Perfuma a lot, especially after this episode. But I don't think I feel that way about her like I do. Say Applejack or Buddy Rabbot from the Sonic Sat AM show, but I do like her quite a bit. <laughs> yeah, because she is so chill. I mean, when Adora is saying asking if she's worried about being outside the protection of the Whispering Woods, she. She just replies that she's not worried at all and wonders what could possibly happen. And I tell myself that I shouldn't have watched your review of the Bubsy pilot the previous night. What could possibly go wrong? <laughs> yeah. Well, anybody with half a brain knows that that's usually the trigger word for trouble in a cartoon. Cue the Horde Troopers on Sky Cycles. And then cue She-Ra's transformation footage. And cue She-Ra and Bo taking all of the Horde act soldiers out, except for the one that just happens to have Perfuma thrown over his arm like a sack of potatoes and driving off. Yeah, this sequence actually is a pretty effective showcase, not just for Bo, who was an, an, a completely uh, useless bystander in the previous episode, but also for Mermista and her cameo, we get to see a little of her magic. So it, so this is definitely a much more effective uh, pitch to sell toys in, in that regard than the last episode was. Also, credit just to have Bo actually taking out quite a few soldiers, because a lot of episodes of this show kind of treat Bo pretty badly, to be honest. Yeah. He, he, he gets to be a... He he kind of gets to be the uh, butt monkey for the heroes a lot in the, in in this series. Still, the end result is as Pemmy described it. Perfuma is carted off because all they needed was one trooper to do that. And uh, Shira asks if Bo can take the shot, but he doesn't want to risk hurting Perfuma. Understandable. That that definitely, I I, I would be afraid of that. Yes, uh, it, it's a valid it's a valid reason. Also, for some reason, I don't remember which episode it was, but there was one episode of Shira I remember seeing a clip of where with Bo where it was just like, uh, Bo was like, I saw this big button that said, don't touch it. And Shira's like, did you touch it? And he's like, of course I did. <laughs> it was like the whole place was about to blow up or something because of it. Yeah. So upon the Horde Trooper's individual return, Hordak is pleased at first but he soon finds the harbinger of the chaos that is about to ensue in his home. <laughs> See, this horde trooper has been covered in flowers by Perfuma. And he does not like flowers. No, no, not whatsoever. It, it, it's enough to make Hordak lose his temper and blast the trooper into scrap metal. And then Hordak asks Perfuma to be sent to a particularly alliteratively described dungeon. I told you most of the cleverness on this series was used for uh, alliteration. Yes, the darkest, dankest, deepest dungeon, if I remember right. Possibly dampest, too. Damp was a bad idea, sir. That's a lot of water that could be used. Oh, yes. So... So Shadow Weaver begins her spell, and we soon see that taking into effect as She-Ra is informing Rebellion leader Glimmer of the situation. 
And it doesn't take much for the Rebels to figure out Hordak's game. Yep. They got... He had to get Perfuma to prevent Perfuma from keeping the plants alive. Right. So Shira goes to Light Hope, the spirit of the Crystal Castle. No, not that one! Not Bentley Bear. I think that was his name. Yeah, it was Bentley. <laughs> so Light Hope informs Shira of the Black Ruby, and it occurs to me we don't see Light Hope. I mean, we don't really quote unquote see Light Hope very at all, but we don't hear from him in episodes very frequently, do we? Not very often. And I think it's Shimer again doing the voice there, but I could be wrong. Pro well, maybe. But uh, when Shira's asking what to do, Light Hope tells her not to rescue Perfuma and to basically do nothing. And Shira proceeds to break the fourth wall. <laughs> Nothing. Yeah, and a side glance and a, uh, a cocked eyebrow. I always and... think that's weird in shows like that because they always like it, it's like it, when the characters look at the camera, it's it, it's like they're not supposed to be breaking the fourth wall. But what else would they be doing in that case? No kidding. So the show takes its commercial break, and uh, and Glimmer is taken sky high to use her maximum power to preserve the trees as best she can. And Madame Raz gets one of her few lines this episode, explaining that Glimmer can do this for roughly an hour. And we haven't really mentioned Madame Raz too much. She's one of Shira's secret keepers. It's kind of like Shira's version of Orko in a way. Granted, you could also argue that's Cal, so I don't yeah, know. Yeah, I, I think they split the dynamic between the two, and and yet somehow made more more generally pleasant characters than Orko could tend to be if he got overexposed in an episode. <laughs> yes. Uh, though, uh, yeah, Lou Scheimer was the voice of Light Hope. I just double-checked that real quick because okay. it was bothering me. Well, yeah. I was, I'm actually kind of disappointed we didn't get very much a cowl in these two episodes, because I loved his design. <laughs> He's got rainbows on his ear wing things. I mean, just the idea of ear wings alone makes him alien, but the design of his face makes him identifiably owl-like. It's a really efficient design. And another voice by, another character voiced by Lou Scheimer. <laughs> yeah, but much more endearing. Yes. It's a very pleasant voice. But again, it helps that he's not overexposed because his his role is, as the Orko is split again with Madame Raz. So as I was saying, we find out from Raz that uh, Glimmer can do this for, this max power move for about an hour a day after getting much needed rest. And they hope that uh, Perfuma is okay. And that's when we check back in with Perfuma and uh, what she's done with her cell. Which she's in the process of making look prettier. Oh, considerably so. She's actually done a nice job with the place. It just needs a, a few throw cushions, maybe a nice chase lounge. Wait, what am I saying? <laughs> <laughs> no, just... Uh, the, the feng shui looks really nice in that dungeon right now. Yeah, but now here's where Perfuma actually shows her genuine badassery. She undoes the lock on her dungeon cell door just with her flowers. 
and it's not even a big thing to her. She's not even once scared of a single thing that's going on around her. If she was, we certainly don't see it in the episode. Oh, no. And that is quite possibly the most subversive thing this show does in terms of gender tropes. Here is arguably one of the girliest characters you can think of on an already very girly-coded show. I mean, her whole gimmick are flowers and scents. And here she is in this horrifying techno-horror of a dungeon, and she doesn't even bat an eye at the place and just starts taking over! That's cojones! <laughs> yeah, she's not even bothered by it at all. She's just like, oh, I can make this pretty with some flowers. Flowers fix everything. Yeah, so she just proceeds to follow her instincts, and by the time Hordak arrives down there, while we briefly catch up with uh, She-Ra and Glimmer, or does that come later? Uh, not sure, but I want to point out that she actually lockpicked the door of her cell by making flowers grow out of it. Yes! It's glorious! It's it's wonderful! Such wonderful mundane utility! But, and hey, if it works, don't knock it! Yep. Uh, we, we do get to go back with uh, She-Ra and Glimmer, and to which... Uh, She-Ra mentions to Bo that, like, Light Hope told her not to do anything, and Bo's like, I hope Light Hope's right. And they're really worried about Perfuma, and it turns out they should be worried about Hordak. Because just as they say it, we smash cut to Hordak, arriving in the Fright Zone dungeon, to not just Flowers, but Perfuma doing a waltz with one of the Horde Trooper robots. Because Hordak comes to check on his uh, prisoner, only to find that she's not only out of her cell, but she has filled the dungeon with flowers and is dancing with the Horde soldiers. Yes, and the Horde soldiers aren't even resisting. Some, I mean, I know they're robots, but the Horde soldiers show a tremendous amount of autonomy and personality, which leads me to wonder to myself, are, are they, in fact, individual AIs? Are, and if so, are some of them just not caring about it anymore and just decided, what the hell, I'll go with it? Maybe. Uh, or maybe they just keep using the same AIs and different ones, so they're probably like, eh, if Hordak's mad, I'll just get reincarnated in another, another shell. So Hordak comes down, he's spitting mad, and, and giving off some great facial expressions, I might add. Oh, yes. Especially in response to how Perfuma reacts to him. Like, by saying, Hello there, Hordykins! Hordykins! <laughs> this, this all combined is enough for Hordak to transmogrify his head into a hammer shape so he can safely have a head-banging tantrum against the metallic walls of the dungeon Don Music style. I lost my crap when that scene happened. I laughed so hard. It was so good. <laughs> oh, that, that was good. I just Also, I just love a lot of his expressions in that scene because uh, Filmation doesn't go off model very often with their characters, but some of those expressions he gave were so hysterically off model for him. It was great. Oh, yes. 
So, around this time, Hordak's first offer makes its way to She-Ra and Bo, saying that Hordak is willing to exchange Perfuma for She-Ra herself. Now, they're not necessarily going for it just yet. Or the exactly quarter, she's like, Normally I would, but Light Hope told us not to do anything, so... It winds up turning out that they still don't necessarily need to do anything, because by the time we're back at the Fright Zone, Perfuma has taken over the entire place. Much to Hordak's chagrin. Yes, and not only is Hordak chagrined, he's also witnessing his troopers performing a conga line with Perfuma, and now they're singing along with her. Uh, it's so good. Yes, and she she's not even scared of his arm cannon. She jams it with her flowers. Yep. Not even batting an eye. Which proves the point that even if he tried to attack her, she would still manage to stop it because she's just like, ah, tsh, flowers. So by this point, a revised offer makes it to the rebel camp. Hordak just wants Perfuma gone. He just wants to hand her back off to She-Ra. <laughs> they still think it's a trap. But this time, She-Ra decides it wouldn't, it's not, wouldn't be doing too much to just give Perfuma a ride. So she heads off to the Fright Zone with Swiftwind. However, doesn't send a response back, so needless to say, Hordak's getting a bit impatient. Yeah. He's just like, I'll just go and fight her myself! And to which end, he also does not inform the troopers stationed at the border of this. So when they spot She-Ra, they don't realize this is a hostage handoff, and they open assault. Which is great, because he I, I never thought I'd hear Hordak go, Don't shoot her! You never tell us anything! Oh. So Hordak just is desperate to hand Perfuma off, especially, and is double, triply humiliated when Perfuma refers to him as Hordikins in front of She-Ra, which gives She-Ra all the leverage she needs to get as much out of Hordak as she can. Oh, also should mention that he managed to have one flower on his head and the for the station guys were like, I really like your... It's like, one more thing, sir. Yes? I really like your flower. And cue the best jumping up and down animation Filmation has ever done, if only for the sheer comedy of it. <laughs> Hordak has a complete tantrum. Yes. So, in the end... Shira not only gets a hold of the black ruby that's been causing all these problems and re and gets Perfuma back home, she manages to get three weeks of supplies from Hordak. Oh, Hordak was just so desperate. I mean, he literally had his hands grasped together, begging her just to take her home. Oh, it's so good. Yes. So, Bo winds up Wondering just how bad Perfuma could have been to Hordak. Cue Perfuma giving Bo a flower crown. He's like, well, then again. <laughs> and, uh, we're, and you would think that would be a good cue to end the episode, but we're still not quite done. Because we have to send Mantena for the Nesty Plunge again. 
Except, guess where all of the flowers got put when they tried to get rid of them? Yep, they put them down the uh, the trap door, and there were so many of them, they filled it all the way to the top, giving Mantena, for once, a very soft landing. Again, much to the anger of Hordak. Now, the lesson for this episode is given by Luki, who I was very interested to find out his gimmick of being hidden in an episode actually predates the Where's Waldo books. Gasp. Yeah. Yeah. Filmation ahead of the curve for a change. Oh, God. Now I remembered the Where's Waldo cartoon. Yeah. And that's another thing we're going to have to do eventually. If we can find it. I've got some episodes of it, except I think they're the British showing of it because they keep calling him Wally instead of Waldo. Oh, that might do in a pinch. (laughs) Or maybe we can do one British and one US and compare the differences. I think the only difference is that he is uh, Waldo's called Wally, and that's okay. it. Okay, which is so, weird because they still call the evil his evil doppelganger Oddlaw. So it's like it's like that name doesn't work if his name's Wally, <laughs> right? So the wizard still sounds like Roddy Dangerfield, then. Yeah. Okay. So back to the lesson. Luki encourages our ch- our child viewers to stop and smell, enjoy the flowers. Hmm. Yes. <laughs> Yes, but that's kind of a stretch for an educational lesson, I think. I mean, it has to do with the show, but... At least it has to do with the episode in comparison to the previous episode. I don't feel feel like it's necessarily educationally beneficial. Well, you know, let's look at it this way. Maybe it's a kind of nice way of saying, kids, stop watching TV for a little while and go outside and do something. So there were some executives at Mattel who believed this gathering of uh, this this of the all these female characters into a spinoff of their big macho boy toy brand was enough dilution of it and ma- and getting girls involved in it and giving them their own sword and everything made the boys say this isn't cool anymore. I just want to use my one cuss word per episode limit to say bullshit. (laughs) Because I had no problem with the mixing of it. Uh, As a kid, I just thought I was getting more of the He-Man action series that I was enjoying just with a different lead. Let's wrap this up as quick as we can. Pemi, after all these years, does She-Ra still have the power? She does. Um, It's but like I said earlier, it's a different, definitely a different feeling of enjoyment than I did as a kid. When I was a kid, I loved these shows because it was action and I thought they were awesome. Uh, now I enjoy them because, gosh, they're so cheesy and hysterical and arguably unintentionally hilarious. But I don't know if I want to say I like them ironically because I don't know if that's still if that's quite the right meaning but i definitely enjoy them it's just like i said for a completely different reason than i liked them as a kid i I have to agree this is definitely it hasn't aged probably the way they intended it to but it's but if we were comparing this to aging like cheese or wine we're probably leaning more towards aging like cheese because it's it's definitely or or maybe do I have that backwards? Eh, close enough. <laughs> yeah, it, it's you know it may smell a little differently, 
but there's still a good flavor to be had, even if it's not the originally intended flavor. And and still, compared to a lot of other, again, girl-intended shows that would come later or before it, it's still progressive enough in the fact that it has action, an action-packed female character doing action-y things and beating the bad guys. So that's still something for the time. And on their own terms. Yep. So that should just about do it this time. I'm James Irish. And I'm Pembroke W. Corgi. And until next time, we're going to go restock the breakfast cereal. See ya! The Penny and James to the sort of hopefully funny cartoon podcast! The preceding podcast is a co-production of the Mighty Monkey Corporation and Artificial Orange Studios. The theme song is written, composed, and performed by Shawn Michael Smith.